Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice as an advising representative with Gold Investment Management, LTD, a firm registered as a portfolio manager and located in Edmonton, Alberta. This podcast does not provide individualized investment, tax, or insurance advice, nor is it meant as a recommendation to any listener to buy or sell any specific securities or otherwise take any other form of investment action. This is an excerpt of the full legal disclaimer that's available on the landing page of this podcast, which includes whether Joel Shackleton, Cam Pitchers, or GIM have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. So, Joel, fall is here. The leads are changing. Football season is back. The hype train of the Dallas Cowboys is completely back. (laughs) And I wanted to get your irrational fan perspective on this because from my rational fan perspective, who, Mm. I mean, caveat, hate the Cowboys and and you and all the fans that make so much noise, you've eaten the New York Giants – Congrats. And you've beaten the New York Jets sans the greatest quarterback of all time <laughs> because he's down for injury now. So you have two wins against two subpar teams, and you're in the definitely a conference that sucks. And now. So the Super Bowl, the, people, the, the team that lost in the Super Bowl last year is in our conference. Correct. And our conference sucks. One has to come out of it. Right, yeah. Okay, so um, I'm going to push back and say that the Jets' D is arguably the best defense in the league. Well, when they're playing for 45 we minutes out of 60. It yeah. wasn't even, like, close. Um, I would argue that two of the top three teams in the league are in our division, um, being Dallas and Philadelphia. Uh, I think that, and I sat down with one of the more knowledgeable football guys I know Oh, yeah. Uh, yesterday, and he's a diehard Eagles fan. Mm. And maybe he's a little bit more rational than me, but he said that he's pretty worried about the Cowboys this year. So um, It's I'm, nice that you're in a dogfight within, like, realistically, there'll be no excuse. There's zero excuse that you should not win. So I actually no, like that better. Because yeah, now when sure. you inevitably lose <laughs> i know it, when because of your quarterback chokes because he will i will i i'll officially be done with him that's fair i mean i was done with him two seasons ago <clears throat> however and then you'll be trying to peel out Jerry somebody will be done with him yeah well you'll be trying to peel somebody out of retirement like philip rivers or, or giving tony. tom brady a call or something like that no, or no tony no. yeah bring tony back that would be the ultimate <laughs> redemption story getting him out of the booth uh, and back so in. so yeah i mean football season has started great for me Mm-hmm. Fantasy wise, terrible. So everyone's injured. I lost Nick Chubb. Probably that guy's done for the rest of his career. It's. I think I it's brought assume. into question. It, it, season ending. Apparently, that guy's got had a very similar explosive knee injury in college as well. So you just hate to see that kind of stuff. Like they wouldn't yeah. even show the replay on on ESPN when they were 
like live, they would not show the replay of that injury because it was so, so gruesome. gruesome. So for those of people that kind of enjoy that stuff, obviously you can find video of it on on X. But it's that's kind of something you just don't want to see. And the amount of punishment these guys take, both both what they've taken punishment wise to their to their uh, pocketbook in the last yeah. few years, as well as the the physical punishment they take, it's it's a lot. Yeah, it's not ideal to be a running back now these days, you know? No, we were just chatting before we started recording just about there was, for those that watch sports religiously, obviously, I think you'd be, or in the NFL specifically, you'd be aware of it. But for those that don't, there's the running back position in sports has become a commodity, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And in the days of LaDainian Tomlinson. The days of the all the glory, like I, you mentioned fantasy earlier. If you were a fantasy football player a decade ago, the first, the most important, top probably top three most important positions or players that you could take would all be running backs. Just because they're workhorses, they would have the ball so much during a game. If you had an elite one, if you had the top one of the top 15 running backs in the league, that became that made you a contender. If you even if you had a, an average quarterback, if you had an amazing running game and a great offensive line or what the unheralded positions you had a chance to win. There was a model based off of winning that said, have a good running game, have a good defense. You have a chance to win every game. And that's really shifted as a result of obviously new, new age coaching analytics. I'm sure have had a big, a a big, uh, a big effect on things as well with teams kind of taking a look and saying the way games are called for sure. The protection that is around quarterbacks and allowing them to throw the ball more, I think the emergence of these uber talented quarterbacks, like I mean, I know you chirp Dak. Dak would be part of that. He's a great thrower. He, he's usually upwards of three hundred passing yards a game. And then, he, but he got the Mahomes, the 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 Allens, the Lamar Jackson, all these guys who can throw the ball, run the ball, kind of control it all themselves, and not necessarily need to have that ancillary running back that is a the cowbell workhorse. There's only a few of those guys left. And in addition to that, you just mentioned Nick Chubb out for the year. We have probably five or six of the top 12 running backs that are either sitting out or injured currently right now. And the offseason story that I alluded to earlier was that all of these guys were essentially holding out and trying to kind of create this mini union of running backs to say, you know, what's happened here? Like where everybody else's salaries are skyrocketing, you're committing all this guaranteed money to quarterbacks and wide receivers and offensive linemen and all these these record deals are being made, but our our salaries have essentially flatlined and we only have so much of a ceiling to get to, which I mean, for the average person, obviously, if you're at least you so many years to play and that as well. So that I mean, so it sounds like when you listen to that from, a, you know, the average Joe saying, well, you're he's arguing over the fact that he has to only make $12 million in a year. It's all relative. Like the conversation is all relative when you're comparing to the, uh, the guy sitting next to you in the locker room, which I mean, Nick Chubb, Cleveland Browns, just the worst sports franchise of all time, probably in terms of disappointment. It might <laughs> like, be Jets actually. Like but... top, top five, we'll say that top yeah. five. And he's got to sit in the locker room next to Deshaun Watson, who, Again, won't get into his history, but not a great history. Not a lot of people would touch him. They committed $240 million to this guy who is currently playing like garbage. And you, Nick Chubb, are the 
you are the cowbell, the premier top three, top five running back in the league, and you're just scraping and clawing to try and get a one-year guarantee of 12 to $50 million or whatever. It's very, it's the, the dichotomy of the conversation around all of this is, is very interesting. And it's basically, like I said, about the, the way the running back is viewed now is saying, well, number one, like, yes, you can be an important piece, but you're not going to last that long. The risk of injury is so high. Why are we going to commit long-term big money to some, something like that? So you have to, from the business perspective, if you were just had the blinders on, you're like, yeah, like that makes complete sense. Why would I spend all this money and invest all this time and, and resources into this one player where I could do that. I could invest all of that into someone who's going to more or less be there for, if they're an elite player, 10 to 12 years, if I really wanted to commit to it from a talent perspective. So it's very interesting because it's, it's completely shifted again from like we're in our, you know, early thirties. When I first got started getting interested in NFL, every marquee player, every, every discussion was around the running back, the running back and the quarterback. And now most fantasy leagues are won by Travis Kelsey. So you have this weird... Cheers to Travis. Thanks yes. for the two years of victories. <laughs> yeah. um, now we have this this change. And I think it's... I mentioned this to you before the podcast, but I it, it all comes back to aggregation theory and where leverage lies. Mm-hmm. And I try to bring it back to business because that's what this podcast is all about. But it's kind of just the way that life works. And when you start to look at the way in which the dynamics of football and how it's a game is won, it's changed. And it's to the fault of, of like you had mentioned, those three, those three items, whether it be coaching, the talent in the quarterback position, and probably the way that the, the game is, is managed from a referee perspective. That's very similar to the way that um, the dynamics of, of the, the economy works, where we've now seen this massive shift technologically from a disruption point of view because of the internet. And the, the winners of that have been those that are able to aggregate attention and demand and have platforms and they're then able to vertically integrate different business models and we're seeing it in media and and it's playing out in sports where the quarterback is the aggregator of attention but also all the play calling it has the most um importance um put on a position because it touches the ball every single snap and it's got a big moat around it because you yeah. can't touch them because <laughs> you can't touch it it's literally a monopoly and then we expect that the rest of the team is somehow going to get properly compensated. Hilariously, if I'm the NFL, you probably need to start creating salary caps at position where mm. you can then carve out different sums of money. Do I think that it makes sense that Patrick Mahomes renegotiated his deal up after a season or two? Yeah, it does make sense because he's the most important player in the league. But at the same, at the same time, where the where the NHL has done really well um, at being evenly distributed, I'd be super pissed if I was Connor McDavid, where I'm only making thirteen or fourteen million dollars, and then you have a fourth line center making three, mm-hmm. but there's it's a little bit e- more evenly distributed, and that's because the game hasn't changed. Unfortunately, the importance of players up and down the lineup is higher than it is in other sports, and that's because of I think refereeing. And that's not because of the coaching. If Connor could play 45 minutes, he'd make $25 million, but he can't. And that's probably because we don't have enough power play time, but we won't go down that road. <laughs> so over the last we'll two save, weeks. We'll save that for yeah, May. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll save that for when I'm making excuses for all the Oilers lost. Um, so when you look at the, the current economy and more specifically media, 
and the way that it's repositioning uh, um, itself. You just saw you had a historic deal where Disney um, ended up um, coming to conditions or agree, an agreement with Charter, who is a provider, internet provider, and a and a um, uh, a cable TV provider. It's starting to look like we're going to get a rebundling of cable uh, companies and and content providers, and those that own sports are going to have, be able to extract more of that value. However, it's going to start coming back together because if they don't come together, and these are all companies that have hated each other for the last 40 years mm -hmm. where they are constantly at odds. Um, if they don't come together, Google or YouTube and YouTube TV is going to wipe the floor with everybody because they have the most attention, they have unlimited shelf space, and everybody is there. And if you don't start to separate yourself from the internet and um, have those cable boxes or whatever the distribution is, so and go back to where, okay, Suits is over, but all new high quality content is now at nine o'clock on Fridays or it goes out on Fridays, mm. eventually you're gonna lose. So if they don't come together and unionize, I actually think what the running backs did with the exception of them all getting hurt and then the equivalent of that in media would be them all not producing good content. Um, I think that that's where uh, in football it needs to go. Mm. But in business, if you aren't aggregating demand, distribution is free, unfortunately. Getting three yards per carry is free. What they need is 15. Distribution is free. What you actually need to have is aggregation of eyeballs, aggregation of, of what's important to whatever that sport might be. Mm. Hockey, it's goal scoring, whatever, right? So. Mm. Um, that's the way that I think about it. And yeah, uh, there was a little, little parallel that we could draw there. Yeah. I mean, these, these dynamics play out in everything, whether you own a restaurant or you manage real estate, I think that something very similar for real estate is occurring, right? Or you, if you look at square footage, if you don't have demand for that location, what's the point? If you don't have like that, that marquee restaurant, if you don't have the, the anchor tenant, it's all the same thing, right? So if you're going to start a business, think about it that way, reverse engineer it, because if you don't have it, you're probably in trouble. And looking out forward, looking, look at the technology coming to disrupt your space, figure out where the, the aggregation is going to find itself. And then you probably need to, that's where the leverage is. And that's where all the value is going to get extracted. So what do they need? What do they want? Exactly. So let's, let's get into markets. The last week and a bit, we've gotten a lot of inflation data. Mm. And um, UK finally saw a dip I saw yesterday. Whoa. Congrats. Yeah, congrats. I'm going to bring up the, <laughs> there's a chart that I saw on Twitter. I was just there over the week. I went for a short trip over to, over across the pond to the UK. And I can tell you that it appears that inflation has hit every East Indian restaurant in the Oxford Street area. Because I could not believe what I was paying the prices? <laughs> yeah. That was just for one day's worth of food. Obviously, I got my fill. It didn't stop me from paying anything. But So, so, so the current year-over-year -year inflation in the United Kingdom, if you were to guess, is? Oh, well, the I saw 6.7% yesterday, but that might have been a month-over-month -month number. So, so. it's 6.2 year-over-year. Okay. Year. okay. Um, Japan's 3.1. Mm -hmm. And for those that haven't been following, Japan has struggled 
to even get to 2% inflation for the last 10 years. So it's running hot. Canada sitting at 3.3, largely done a decent job getting back down to target, which is two. Um, the United States at 4.7, Euro or Europe at 5.3, Australia at 5.9, and the UK coming in hot at 6.2. I think that what's the <laughs> but again the first reduction yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the biggest the biggest problem really is still remain it's still employment and I'm going to go through the the stats. This is from Bob Elliott on Twitter or X. The eurozone is sitting at 6.4 percent unemployment. And for those that don't know, that's actually very, very tight. That's 50-year lows. They haven't seen employment like this in Europe in f over 50 years. Crazy. Canada, we're sitting at 5.5, also just off of our 50-year low. Mm -hmm. The UK, 4.3%, also off of 50-year lows. Um, the United States, 3.8%, just off of 50-year uh, lows. And Japan, 2.7%. That's roughly 20-year lows. If we don't start to see a crack in employment, we're likely going to see higher for longer. Mm -hmm. And Bob Elliott's been talking about this for a very long period of time. And he's been really starting to beat the drum the last six weeks. And it's not that I think that he's everything here, but I do believe he's, he's honing in on the right things here. And you're starting to see it in the yield curve where the center of it, if you're looking at the twos and tens, so two-year borrow, 10-year borrow for the government of Canada, or if you look at the United States, it's starting to see a increase in its curvature, mm -hmm. which tells people that the economy is going to stay hot, but they're going to have to keep rates higher for longer. So for people that are worried about their mortgages coming due in six months, nine months, a year, if we don't see employment crack, you're going to wish that they raised rates faster. Because unfortunately in Canada, most of us are going to ref remortgage next year or the year after and if we don't get some sort of movement here on employment you probably relocate or you're re-upping re at a 5.5 to 5.9 percent five-year fixed mortgage rate and for most people that's a doubling of interest mm -hmm. on their current debt so I'm not, I'm not necessarily like trying to be alarmist here. I'm just suggesting. Well, it's that preparing that's yourself though, right? right? I mean, it's not, I mean, I think there was, again, we talked about how the rhetoric has really changed. I mean, we would be included in that rhetoric in terms of us sharing the information that we're reading and giving our opinions on things. But in regards to, I mean, start, let's call it, you know, March, April of 23, I would say it was 50, 50, maybe even. I think even more bullish on the fact that, Hey, we're going to see in the U S anyway, see a cut before the end of the year of, of a substantial amount potentially like a, a series of cuts. I and actually think so. Just, I don't mean to, I do mean to cut you off, but I just think that it's important to recognize that historically it's been very important for interest rates or the borrow, the cost mm -hmm. to borrow is higher than the current rate of inflation in order to break the back of inflation. Right. And Canada and the United States are both above that. We actually are above our current inflation rate in terms of what the cost of borrowing is. The rest of the world, not even remotely close. Right. Like Japan is 3% below that. It's still free to get money there effectively. Um, Australia is 2% below. Um, the, Euro, uh, the Eurozone is 1% below. The United States is 1% above and Canada is 2% above. 2 to 3% above tends to be where you want to be. So that is encouraging for Canadians. But then we start to back out some of the other issues we have, and um, it feels like it's not enough. So um, we're all hyper close to it. 
not only that, I believe in Alberta, we're, we're not especially feeling it. Like I believe Ontario likely is, or BC likely is in terms of the pain. Yeah. But I think we've already talked about some of that pain though, is starting to come into like the Calgary area specifically with the amount of, I guess, internal immigration into that city. And just mm-hmm. like, I mean, I, I know you've had examples of talking to clients and friends down there and me too, and just how the, the market itself just seems to be housing specifically, obviously, but that has enough, obviously an effect on everything. And there's, I think at the end of the day, the, like I said, I think the two rhetorics that were mainly being spelled out earlier this year was that one was bullish on, Hey, we've done everything that we can. They can't go any higher and they can't go any longer than this stop or dead stop date, wherever it was going to be. And that is just with, I think with the preconception that, okay, well, employment's going to unemployment's going to go up Mm -hmm. and this is going to happen because it has to go up and it just hasn't happened. It's been consistent. And now I think we're, I'm seeing a lot more consistency in the higher for longer amongst. Well, that is consensus right now. hundred percent. Yeah. Which is again, when we were chatting about things six months ago, call it, it was very much up in the air, which I mean, it's always going to continue to be up in the air because you yeah. never know what's going to come down the pipe. Well, but in December last year at the bottom of the S and P 500 and everyone was terrified. Everyone was saying we're going to have a hard landing mm-hmm. and now consensus is soft landing, but we aren't sufficiently tight in order to get inflation back down. So is a soft landing even possible? So now that is starting to become the contrarian view, mm. which is where the money will be made. And this is where I want to bring up the next thing that I think is really important to markets on the, on a call it six month, nine month um, go forward. And that is oil prices. And Albertans know oil prices better than a large majority of North America. Mm. And we've seen it go from a low of high of 50s this year and last year, say low 60s, where we even saw um, a a few people comment on the Alberta budget being a problem. And now we're back over 90 on um, the price of WTI. And when you take a look at that as a contributor to inflation and just the overall cost of living, Mm -hmm. that is what was once a massive draw on or draw down on inflation for the last 18 months, it's now going to be something that contributes to the increase or the reacceleration of inflation. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem. So for investors, the number one thing I'm talking about with people as I transition them from my old firm to my new one is they think that the market isn't worth it anymore. You look at the yields that on banks, you're in the sixes from a dividend yield perspective, but then you could lend the money to the government for five and a half. And high interest savings accounts, GICs, people are, it's easy to be attracted by these high yields. And I mean, gosh, even for myself, for money set away for, for down payment on a new house I purchased, I mean, it's pretty easy for you to make that, that argument. But I still mm-hmm. am trying to pound the table on like long-termism because oftentimes the best returns come when interest rates are high, not when they're low. The last 10 years, if you looked at every other country other than America, returns were terrible because interest rates were zero. Now you go back to the mid 2000s when interest rates were roughly the same as what they are today, perhaps lower, maybe a little bit higher. Europe did incredibly well. Asia did incredibly well. I mean, Canada did really well just from a, a, a return perspective mm-hmm. from um, equities. So now you, you, 
you look at the current yield on to maturity on corporate yields, uh, when you look at the yields maturity on, on government bonds, it's really hard not to just take the easy return. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the history tells us that the best time to invest in equities is generally when interest rates are high, not when they're low. And that has been the case the last 12 years. The TSX or Canada has underperformed relative to the United States. Um, and the United States has drastically outperformed. And that's largely off the back of seven large tech companies. And are, are we going to see another seven large market cap tech companies emerge? Are we going to see a doubling of those market caps? I don't know. Hard to make that argument. But in my opinion, it's starting to look fairly attractive to, to, to invest in equities in those nations that perhaps have lagged the United States. So um, that's, this is all to say that it's based off of, in my opinion, um, where a commodity price is going to be. If we see a continued resilience of interest rates or inflation, so then interest rates have to stay high, I don't know what to think, but I would assume equities and bonds both have to perform poorly. And the best place to be in that case would be commodities because they have a great correlation in terms of return to those two asset classes and those that don't own them. And that's not usually a problem in Alberta. You're going to wish you did. And what does that mean? I mean, this isn't necessarily investment advice, by the way. I'm just suggesting that in the past, it's done very well. So you're suggesting to go and purchase gold bars. Definitely talk to your uh, financial advisor about this. <laughs> Put Do them in a little case to underneath your... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, yeah, I just, that's what I'm paying attention to specifically. Mm. Um, right now, when when you take a peek at Alphabet and Google, or Google, Amazon, the PE, both of those companies, it's, it's insanely high. You look at Apple, who's about to see year over year declines in revenue growth, and it's actually going to see a contraction. Well, yeah, their margins are getting better. That's somewhat worrying, don't you think? I mean, Apple is, is trading at something close to 30 times earnings. That's a growth stock, but they're going to see revenue declines. That's, it feels expensive to me. They got the hype of the Apple Vision Pro now. Yeah. I mean, NVIDIA is growing and trading at 65 times earnings, but I get it. I, I just struggle to see, especially at the, on the leadership end, where that growth is going to come and justify the, the price to earnings ratio you were paying. Mm -hmm. um, Can I, mean, I ask Google you? Google seems cheap. Facebook still seems cheap. Um, but the, the remainder of those companies, it seems difficult. For someone who, or maybe this is an education piece here, like I know you, I'm not sure if this would be something that you're going to share in the newsletter or not, but you would share with me anyways, the kind of the current prices of all these stocks. So you got Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, uh, Tesla, and Meta on this little list here. And it goes, gives you the breakdown of the, how much of that stock makes up the S&P as well as then you got current price and average price target. And I think you've educated me on this before, but I think it is interesting to understand what you have your current price and then that, that average price target. What, what is that average price target? So that's from if, if research if you were to look analysts at that. on the street. So the average price target is from all the big research institutes that have sell-side research. They all have price targets. And from that research, you aggregate them all together, and this is the average. So some of them are showing a higher return. So if you look at the difference between the average price target on the street and the current price of Apple, um, analysts are thinking that there's going to be a 33.9% return. 
um, Microsoft. And what is that? That price target is at what point in the future? I believe a year. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty darn good, isn't it? Sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> uh, but with all that said, I, analysts, and I, I don't know the, the actual data on this, how often are they right or how often are these price targets going to be achieved um, in the time horizon that they are setting out? Pretty challenging. Mm -hmm. But if you go and you look and read through most of that research, some of it's buy, some of it's not. There's a bunch of stuff you need to understand about why they, they put out certain research. However, um, these people are experts and they, they do have a, a much better understanding than the average retail investor. And um, so with that in mind, I do believe that there's a lot of value in, in reading these, these research reports, understanding mm -hmm. the average. But well, I was even just looking at it from like the perspective of, okay, well, which ones on this list of seven or eight or whatever is here are the potential upsides the highest. And like, I'm trying to find a common thread between them. So Apple, potential upside 33.9%, NVIDIA, potential upside 41.9%, and I guess that would be Amazon. Amazon and Meta are both in the kind of low 20s. And so what's the common theme amongst those AI four companies? And innovation-related stuff, right? Where, I mean, Tesla, um, I mean, that that would have been on the, on the same premise of what we're talking about here from an innovation standpoint is, I mean, Tesla's... Uh, potential upside is actually in the negative based off this current projection. But if you look at <laughs> their, their uh, price to earnings ratio at the highest on that list at 71.5, like that's been, that's been the knock this, their entire time is, I mean, they're, <laughs> they've been trading based off of the, they've been overvalued and they've been trading off of the backs of, uh, you know, Elon, the person and, and the technology in terms of its, impact as a whole mm -hmm. to the, rather than just like their specific product. And so th that, that was the one thing I was just looking at. I was like, well, I mean, to me, you know, maybe Microsoft would be something that I would feel more comfortable with quote unquote on maybe seeing a gain of some sort mm -hmm. in terms of where they're webbed out to right now and invested in and, and making their, I guess their traditional business model kind of thing versus like you said, like you look at Apple's financials, it's like, well, you're seeing poor financial results, but then the average price target and upside is at 33.9. So they're obviously expecting, okay, well, this is just a down to then get back to an up. Well, it's a new product cycle. So you're getting, interestingly, you're getting USB-Cs. A lot of people think that Europe was the, the leader in, in pushing the USB-C into the iPhone, but in reality, it's been something like six years or seven years since they've done their last power charge cable up update. Um, in order to get proper data transfer, you need to have a USB-C. Anyways, the idea is that the, the last big change of the design of the iPhone was the 12 or 11, whatever that was. And now um, we're now in a, a re, a new changing cycle with the 15. Mm -hmm. And um, the optimism, I think, around that and the growth that they're likely to see there is partially um, uh, this potential upside. Further to that, I believe that their services is a huge um, focus of theirs. And in order to see that multiple expansion and see a 33% growth, you probably need to see their margins continue to improve. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what it is. But what I want to get back to and what I actually want to talk about is, is the, um, how do you see real price appreciation in a equity, especially a growth equity, that is different than what the S&P 500 or the TSX is going to give you. So what is the, in, how do you outperform the index? 
And what you need to be right on is not consensus. Consensus is based off of this, that it's going to grow at this rate. Mm -hmm. Every, whatever these analysts are reporting um, is usually baked in. So what new piece of information or new reality or new dynamic in their business or the world is going to justify a change in people's perception of that valuation. And that is how you need to think about six and nine months out. That's how you need to think if you're going to own individual stocks, which again, very, very difficult to do on a, if you're going to own a portfolio, let's say you got a million bucks and you decide, you know what, I don't want to own the S&P 500. I don't want to own the broader global index. I want to own 10 securities, 10% each. You better know what you're doing because obviously concentration is where you see outperformance. However, in order to see like consistent outperformance, you need to be right 55 plus percent of the time at an outsized rate. And we've done this on multiple other podcasts where we talked about the S&P 500, outperforming the S&P 500 and other companies that are still traded today and how drastically or how poor they've done relative. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm trying to tell you is that in order to see an outsized return and for to justify you owning this security versus the, the index specifically, you need to see it probably change its story to continue to outpace a much more low risk por portfolio investment. So, I mean, right now it's expensive to own this stuff. The S&P 500 right now is trading at 18 times earnings. These businesses that we were talking about, the seven big ones, the average is 39.4. And say that concentration really yeah. drives that up as well. Yeah, yeah. Which... if you remove Amazon and Tesla, which are much larger uh, multiples, mm -hmm. I mean, it's 27.7. So for a dollar of earnings that you're buying, you got to pay $27.7, $27.70 for every company X, Tesla and X, Amazon on that seven company list. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were to buy the 504 companies that are in the S&P 500, it's going to cost you $18.80 to buy a dollar of earnings. That's how you got to think about it. And is that what you want to be doing? So it doesn't matter which one you're talking about. You can go and you can think about Suncor if you're going to think about Enbridge or you're going to think about any one of those um, individual companies that you might follow. In order for you to see an outsized return above that of the market, you need to think of a six to nine month catalyst for why you're right and why this is going to outpace the growth of the world and the growth of the, of the, the broadly traded um, public sphere. Mm -hmm. So that's my market update and chat for today because I think it's, hey, we're, we're droning on and it's not nearly as fun mm -hmm. as it is sleep, might be for me. Sleep on that, people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, um, it's good advice. And, and I think speaking to my, as like a very casual investor and someone who leans heavily on the advice of my good friend and of people way smarter than me in, in this sphere is understanding that once you get to a certain critical mass of like whatever you're choosing to do with your money and how to invest it and, and what you're going to do, don't, <laughs> I guess my advice always, and this is the advice I give myself always is like, you're not the smartest person in the room. And maybe that, maybe there's a lot of people on listening to this podcast. Well, you are right now, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I was going to make a comment that we don't know that for sure, but uh, I'll take the I'll take the, the the props. But the I think it's just having that understanding and being open to the fact that what has worked before is not always going to work in the future, and just understanding that like your perspective that you just gave gives you the 
it's a, it's a constant changing evolution, even though like we have talked for months about the big seven or big eight, whatever it might be, but how you hold those big eight or like the, the percentage that you're holding is that's always going to change based off of new data, new information, understanding, or having the perspective of what's perception going to be on this company. Like you said, in the next six to nine months, it, it you can't just take one report and no, and make an investment. Put it choice. in your pocket, and make that investment, and then come back in five years. Not a good idea. Exactly. So I, I, I think that's the that's the takeaway yeah. for sure when you're when you're talking about yeah. the the average investor or someone who is looking to make a change in anything is that you need to make sure that you're either hearing that perspective or that you have that perspective. No, I completely agree. So let's make a. I'm going to shift gears here, mm-hmm. and you got a interesting thread here on the GST being removed from rental housing. Yeah, so that was an announcement last week. Uh, our Prime Minister has been in the news for a couple other things mo- most recently, so this kind of got shuffled under the rug pretty quickly. With, Which is too bad because it's a, good, it's a good little... It's a nice little step in the right direction. I think it's something that was originally promised back in 2015 on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. I believe, or shortly after maybe getting elected in. And so many people, obviously, um, staunch conservative supporters. And I mean, you hear Pierre uh, Paul Hivert talking about how this is a flip flop and obviously just a about time. Yeah. Well, and just one of those things where it's like they know that they're currently the liberals are currently polling be- below the conservatives and like the number one issue amongst Canadians, I believe, for the most part is to- is affordability and, and housing and whatnot. So this is obviously uh, as much of a political play i i won't speak to the i i I did read some articles from uh ctv and and elsewhere talking like from talking from the economist i'll give some of those perspectives in a second but talking about is this too little too late is this is should have this been done back in 2015 there there's differing opinions on that obviously and maybe some of those bias but basically saying that you know other cutting the gst at that time when um again cheap money, et cetera, was, would, it have, would it have really made a dent? Would it have made that big of a difference? There's differing opinions on that. But at the end of the day, the big takeaway from this is that, yes, this is a good thing. Yes, this is a step in the right direction. But like most, like most policy in the developed world, it is like turning a aircraft carrier in the ocean. It's going to take a long time f- to see the reverberations of this. Now, this... If, this there's a few things that we don't know on like everything that gets announced by the government ever. The announcement gets all the hoopla and then the details of that announcement are yet to come. So I think some of the questions that still remain on this announcement about GST being essentially removed on the construction of new rental apartments is that what's the definition of an apartment building? So does it need a certain amount of units? Does it need to be a certain amount of floors? What is it? It, what what does it fall into? Or th- like for example, there's a huge. I'm assuming we probably have people listening to this podcast that might own a threeplex or a fourplex. And would there be would this be would this type of rebate or GST exclusion uh, also include into developments such as that? Who does this truly impact at the end of the day? Is this going to be just builders? Is it going to have an effect to landlords? How rent or how GST is being charged in the long term as well? Will this only apply to buildings that have been rented out after the announcement date and purchased, or is there going to be some kind of grandfathering or retroactive thing that that certain developers can 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 look to to capitalize on? How long does 
or are there any restrictions on time? Uh, will the GST relief be by way of a rebate versus an actual charge? So, I mean, that, that's getting a little bit technical, but essentially I think what most people think is going to happen is that you do charge the GST, but then you receive a rebate in regards to that GST, uh, just because you will be obviously paying, like developers will be paying GST on the use of vendors for the construction. So, how does that all going to flow and how, what's that going to mean from a true compliance standpoint and reporting, which is going to be a important thing for accountants like me to understand and for our indirect tax, which that's kind of the term we use at our firm. So GST, how, how is it going to affect things? Is something similar going to be rolled out from the provincial sales tax standpoint? That's what the, uh, the liberals have, have strongly encouraged that provinces who also have a provincial sales tax. Yeah, really good. Just don't have it. It's perfect. <laughs> and then um, the other th- big thing here that was talked about consistently is essentially them. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that the the zoning restrictions in a lot of our cities are. It's obviously those decisions really come down to the local government stage. Like whether that be municipal, like from the mayor mayor perspective or the mayor's office perspective, etc. But essentially, all the red tape that there is on the ability to create more housing availability. So if you want to rent out your basement, for example, in Calgary, the example where I read, it's just the asinine amount of paperwork and bureaucracy that's involved in doing that has caused there to be so many headaches in doing it. People aren't pursuing it, which obviously has an effect on housing affordability, housing availability. So them calling on local governments to say, we need to, we need to make this easier. We need to make this more seamless for people to be able to to do this, to provide more short-term availability while this hopefully long-term fix of one measure, which they did also, I'm not sure if it was Justin or Krista Freeland after the fact making comments, et cetera, but saying they, they know there's more measures to come to address this affordability issue. They know that it's going to be the talking point for probably the short and the long-term, uh, probably heading into whenever the next election is going to be. So they have said there's there's more to come. So we'll see what that is. So one one just a few more like facts kind of thing or uh, opinions anyways from something that I read. So CTV article by Michael Lee. Um, he had a conversation with a couple of economists, one from RBC, Rachel Battaglia, and one from BMO, the chief economist from there from Douglas Porter. So I'm just going to read you a few comments here and then you can kind of rebuttal if you'd like. But obviously we have this low supply right now, this deficit position in terms of the the housing that's available. So the removal of GST on these rental construction projects will definitely improve the financial viability of these projects. And it's truly to spur development is what this measure is for. But again, this is such a, this is not something that people are like, oh, this is great. Now there's going to (laughs) be 50 more complexes for me to live in or for us to take on the, I think it's CMHC has, has estimated, and I think we've actually used this number specifically, by 2030, we need three and a half million more housing units available over and above what is currently budgeted. Three and a half million in order to come up with, we, we, it would have been months ago, we talked about the kind of immigration uh, projections for this country, et cetera. So I say that number, so yeah, CMHC re- reaffirmed a previous report knowing the country needs three and a half million housing units by 2030 on top of what would be built and meet 2000 and, and, and also to meet 2004 levels of affordability. So the question is asked, is this even possible? 
And so CMHC come out, comes out blatantly and says, no, it's not like we're, we're saying this is what needs to happen, but we're also saying out, out the other side of the mouth, this isn't possible it, with how it's currently set up with the current regime, et cetera. There's 250,000 housing starts each year in Canada. So that number would need to double oh, to meet the need. Oh my goodness. BMO chief economist, Douglas Porter, I previously mentioned. So he notes that the all-time record for housing completions in a year was in 1974, where we had 257,000. Isn't that mind-blowing that our record for housing completions in a year? Was 50 years ago? Yeah. So you think about, we just finished talking about all these great tech companies, and we talk constantly about how our lives are, all of the things that have changed in our in our lives to make ourselves more efficient, more effective. But we can't build a house. But we can't build a house. And it's not because of the techno. Like, I mean, obviously you've gone through building a house before. I'm assuming that experience was hella good in comparison to <laughs> like our, what our parents went through, like that experience or whatever. Yeah. And like what you can get into a house and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But the ability to actually get that done, the amount of, I'm going to say again, like bureaucracy, the amount of paperwork, the amount of red tape that's involved in getting something done has obviously been the biggest deterrent. In addition, like there's obviously the financial aspect of like the costing of things, et cetera, that have uh, a massive effect as well. And this, again, this GST relief item is supposed to be something, well, when you're out of pocket, (laughs) 5% on something off the top, it's that's a big number with some of these developments. So that's, I totally, again, it's the general sentiment amongst It wipes out the cost everybody. of money, which is nice. Exactly. So it, it, it's a definitely a good step in the right direction and it's good for the long term. But again, it's like the, 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 the negative what? comments around this, of course, are just that, well, why, you know, why did we take so long? We, we knew that we were going to have an afford out. We knew that we were having these population projections or increases for a long time why wasn't something like this thought about years ago again is it a political play is it you know take your pick on what that might be but at the end of the day this is a general step in the right direction but there more needs to be done so he doug porter goes on to say we we have come uh so far but cannot do more what has changed he adds that Bank of Canada estimates that investors are currently taking up about 30% or more of the housing supply. So if we are going to count on a supply fix alone to fix this huge issue, it's obviously we're going to be waiting forever for this to actually be fixed. So what do those other measures that the Liberal government is talking about going to be? Obviously, they don't know either. That's why they said there's just more to come. There's going to be a huge fund. So, I mean, we talk about, yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's some other, yeah. There's going to be the world, UBIs. Our, Canada's largest sum of money is going to become available for builders to tap for them to go and build without having to go and find capital from private equity or find capital from banks because banks aren't going to be lending because they feel like they're re- retreating. I mean, mm-hmm. just recently we saw BMO exit the, the car market. I think that, quite frankly, if we don't see a reasonable, like sizable amount of money become available. I don't know if this 5% gets it off the ground because it's still, I mean, one of the biggest things, well, obviously red tape is a big problem, but mm-hmm. finding capital and raising it to start a business to go and, and build homes is already hard enough. Yeah, I know quite a few home builders around our city specifically that are legacy builders that find it to be insanely hard business. It's cyclical, it's difficult. I mean, mm-hmm. the input costs of these houses and then the carrying costs of these houses is 
so challenging. If you think the carrying costs of a, of a car dealership is tough, try building 2,000 houses a year. I think mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's shockingly difficult to do, and you have to get lucky to be consistently good for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And um, if you don't de-risk these projects for new builders, because mm-hmm. that is, I think, the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, where do you find new home builders? Mm-hmm. Everyone that I noticed getting into the market has basically said, you know what? I can't take the risk of building 50 to Yeah, I'll do five, homes. exactly. I'll do yeah. five bespoke yeah. homes for rich people. Yeah. Well, that doesn't help yeah, anyone. That's the other thing, too, is talking about, like, I mean... Uh, it would be obviously on point in terms of their general rhetoric, but the NDP questions, well, what is, what is this, this, is this specifically in relation to fitting into a category of affordable housing building, or does this also apply to luxury condos that are being built, et cetera? Totally agree. But what's, but that's another problem is that it's the type of housing you're building. Are you just going to build a bunch of two-bedroom apartments? Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't solve the issue either. These mm-hmm. are families that are coming over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Families aren't going to live in an apartment. This isn't Manhattan. Our lifestyle as Canadians is is not the yes. same. Yeah. And so this is what it really, again, a lot of the definitions, I think, need to be worked out. And we then I think once that gets released, we need to come back to the table and discuss this and at more length for sure. Because I think there's too many, like, and again, nimbyism. like I said. We like, have to solve the nimbyism because it's municipal. <laughs> I, I got to say, like, we need to build way more houses closer to downtown in Edmonton, just not near me, my house. Yeah. <laughs> as long as they're at least 500 feet away, I'm good. Yeah. So um, the, yeah, I think, again, I want to reiterate, generally speaking, widespread positive messaging in, in terms of saying this is a good idea. It's just that this should have been executed a long time ago and or a lot of questions being raised to say, this is a good idea, but how widespread are you making? And are you making, are you going to make this something where it is an additional bureaucratic level of compliance things you have to do? So yeah. in order to do get this rebate, you have to do ABC and X, Y, and Z, Z in order it to do it. It feels like all so, of these things that they do, it's just to the benefit of accounts. <laughs> well, they need to keep us employed because, you know, who knows? In, in, a, in 20 years, yeah. maybe I'll just be sitting at my desk with Vision Pros on, chilling out. Podcasting. The computer can do everything. Yeah. Um, well, Cam. <laughs> it's uh, a good thing to check out. So for yeah. those that are listening, it, be aware of the news articles that are going to, and the news releases that are going to come out on this because there's definitely going to be uh, more information to come in terms of defining these things. And you're going to want to talk to your accountant at the end of the day too, to make sure that you understand what this means if you are a developer or thinking about getting into being part of investing in development or whatever it might be. Honestly, it's one of the biggest opportunities that's out there. That, in my opinion, and this is my exit, what I've been reading, I've been reading a ton of private business opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I've gotten sucked down this hole, but there are so many for sale companies in Alberta for people willing to go and do hard things. Um, so interesting opportunity for young people, millennials, there are incredibly interesting, hard jobs, but outrageously profitable companies, especially if you were to lean them up a bit that are available for young people to go and take some risk and, and, um, get involved from an entrepreneurship perspective. Uh, if you are interested in that, uh, I can definitely show you where in the paper to look or on the internet to look. But, um, but yeah, that's my recommendation for listeners, readers. We got a lot of sports, so you don't need more TV content. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. We'll talk to you next Wednesday.